in his book entitled Transformational Discipleship, it is Eric Geiger who says that if an organization becomes careless in its core reason for existence, it doesn't matter if that organization excels at other things. He gives a few contemporary examples. If Apple becomes deficient in building a state-of-the-art computer, then its ability to have cool marketing schemes don't matter. If Starbucks becomes deficient in making coffee, then its ability to create a trendy ambiance doesn't matter. If Nike becomes deficient in making a durable tennis shoe, then its high-dollar endorsements don't matter. If an organization becomes careless in its core reason for existence, then it doesn't matter if that organization excels in other things. Throughout the ages, the church has excelled in many things. We know what it is to build buildings and raise money, to staff a church, to put on programs, put on events, and draw a crowd. But if the church becomes careless in her core reason for existence, then it doesn't matter if that church excels in other things. Let's be very clear this morning that our core reason for existence is to make disciples for a global impact. We exist to be disciples and to make disciples. A disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. A disciple is one who knows him personally and makes him known passionately. We exist to make disciples for a global impact. We are in the middle of a seven-part sermon series entitled Making Disciples. We are examining seven characteristics of a God-built disciple. All seven of these characteristics are on display in the Old Testament book of Psalms. And today, we will discover that a disciple is one who has a mission outside the church. A disciple is one who has a mission outside the church. I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, turn to Psalm 67. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 67, please hear the word of the Lord. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. There are some popular psalms with notable lines. We recall how Jesus quoted Psalm 22 as he hung on the cross, for he declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We remember well the opening line of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. We remember fondly the glorious invitation of Psalm 100 to enter his courts with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Yet when you and I come to Psalm 67, we find a, a psalm that's not all that popular. In fact, 
In his work on the Psalms, Martin Luther skipped this psalm entirely. This psalm of Psalm 67 does get a mixed review. While Martin Luther skipped it, John R.W. Stott called it one of my favorite psalms. There's more than one theologian who says of Psalm 67, it is a missionary psalm. And so on this day of Mission Sunday, I thought it appropriate for us to examine a mission psalm. So here in 67, we have what many have called a missionary psalm. Psalm 67 is comprised of three stanzas. Stanza 1 is verses 1 and 2. Stanza 2, verses 3 to 5. Stanza 3, verses 6 and 7. Those three stanzas can be described in three words. The first stanza can be summarized as a prayer. The second stanza can be summarized as passion. And the third stanza can be described as promise. The psalmist begins with a prayer. In verse 1, he simply says, May God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us. When he identifies the Lord of hosts as God, he uses that ancient Hebrew word Elohim. It is the first name of God that we have ever come across. We come across it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word God, that name for God, is Elohim. He's the God who makes some stuff. In fact, he's the God who makes all stuff. He is Elohim. He is sovereign. He is creator. He is exalted. He is, he is high. He is supreme. This is our God. He is Elohim. He's the God who makes everything. The truth of the matter is, Elohim has no business of wasting his time on us. He is so holy and we are so not. We are not holy. We are completely sinful. And yet Elohim has a soft spot when it comes to people. Elohim has a soft spot when it comes to his creation, specifically the humanity of his creation. God simply loves you. The psalmist knows this, so he knows that because God is God, because he is Elohim, Elohim longs to get close and personal with people. So because of that, he prays. And in this prayer of Psalm 67, verse 1, what does he ask for? He says, O Lord, O God, O Elohim, be gracious to us. Bless us. May your face shine upon us. The word grace according to Philip Yancey, is the world's best last word. The word grace, it means to receive a good gift that you do not deserve. More than one person has built the acrostic that grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Grammatically, it's a noun. Theologically, it's a verb. This word describes who God is and how he acts. Because God is gracious, he acts graciously towards his people. So here in this prayer, the psalmist just simply says, Elohim, be gracious to us. In other words, God, keep on being God. Just keep on being yourself because you can't help but to be gracious. Oh, God, be gracious to us and bless us. Most of the time when we think of blessing, we think of material blessing. We connect it to riches and rewards of this world. We call a person blessed if that person has a lot of money. 
lives in a nice house, drives a nice car, has a fat bank account, somehow has avoided cancer, has children that are obedient to him. We speak of that person and we say, he is blessed. But the Hebrew word that is employed in Psalm 67 implies something much more fundamental. In order to be blessed biblically, what that word means is that Elohim has now entered into a personal relationship with us. Because he has entered into a personal relationship with us, we are blessed. Independent of the car we drive, independent of the circumstances of our life, independent of the health of our bodies, independent of the size of our bank account, if we know God, we are blessed. I wish somebody would give me an amen this morning. If you know God, you are blessed. Biblically speaking, the blessed people are the people of God. Here the psalmist just says, oh God, be gracious to us. Oh God, bless us. Make your face shine upon us. This is reminiscent of what Aaron prayed in his priestly blessing of Numbers chapter 6. May God be gracious to us. May God make his face to shine upon us and give us peace. The idea of making his face to shine upon us is synonymous with God smiling at us. If you visualize God smiling at you, it puts a smile on your face, doesn't it? I mean, you think that the God of the universe is smiling upon you. His favor is resting upon you. His glory is bestowed upon you. If you visualize a God who smiles at his people, it puts a smile on your face. Somehow it lightens the load, doesn't it? It lifts the burden, doesn't it? If you visualize the God of the Bible as being portrayed as the God who smiles at us. He's not the God who frowns at us. He's not the God who snarls at us. His favor rests upon us. He makes his face to shine upon us. He smiles upon his people. The opposite of God smiling upon his people is God's glory not being bestowed upon his people. In the Bible, that word is Ichabod. It's a weird word, but it literally means the glory of God is gone. That God has turned his back on you. God has turned his face away from you. He's no longer smiling upon you. But here the psalmist says, oh God, oh Elohim, you are gracious. You bless us. May your favor, may your face shine upon us. Now here's a big question of Psalm 67. Why does the psalmist ask for this? Why does he pray, God, be gracious. God, bless us. God, make your face to shine upon us. Is it for the personal convenience and comfort of the author? The answer is no. Look in verse 2. So that your salvation may be known among the nations. The reason God is gracious to you 
is so that the nations will see God through you. The reason God blesses you is so the nations will see God through you. The reason God smiles his favor upon you is so that the nations will see God smiling through you. He blesses you. He graces you. His face shines upon you, not for your mere convenience, not just for my personal comfort, but he does this so that we might make known his salvation to the nations. That's the reason why we are a blessed people. That's the reason why God is gracious to us. That's the reason why his smiles upon us. So that we can make him known and his salvation be proclaimed to the nations. But here's another question that must be asked of Psalm 67. The question is, how do we make his salvation known to the nations? Second stanza. The second stanza is summarized by the word passion. It is God's passion. You look at the second stanza, verses 3 to 5, and you quickly conclude that verse 3 and verse 5 are identical. It's a, it's a sandwich. It's a, a bookends that the author places around the second stanza. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. He says that not once, but twice. He says it in verse 3. He says the identical same thing in verse 5. So God has blessed us. He has graced us. He, his favor shines upon us so that we may make known his salvation. When his salvation is made known among the nations, what happens? The nations praise him. Why do they praise him? Look in verse 4. Verse 4, second stanza, says that the peoples will praise him because God acts justly. And God guides the nations of the earth. When, when the nations realize, when the pagan people understand, when those who did not know God come to know God personally, they will respond in joy and song. We call that praise. They will respond in praise and they will learn, they will know that ours is not a God who flies off at the handle. He's a God who acts justly. They will understand that ours is not a God who's a tribal God or a national God. He is a global God. He is the God of the nations because he directs the affairs of the nations. Ah, but here's the question. So we get that when the nations receive God's salvation, they'll respond in praise and they will learn that God is just and he guides the nations. Oh, but here's the ultimate question. How are the nations going to learn that of God? How are they going to learn that God is just? How are they going to learn that God guides all the affairs of the nations? How will they learn that? And the short answer is, through God's people, and through God's word. That's it. That's the plan. God's cosmic plan of making his salvation known to the peoples of the earth is that he will make it known through his people and through his word. You do realize that it's God's heartbeat to save people. It is God's design for people to be saved, both Jew and Gentile. You read of this as early as the first book of the Bible. 
Specifically in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord makes a covenant. A covenant is a promise. He makes a promise with Abraham. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. Everyone who blesses you, I will bless. Anyone who curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. In the Abrahamic covenant, don't forget that last line. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All the people has to include Jewish people and Gentile people. It is God's design to save Jew and Gentile. You say, what's a Gentile? Who's a Gentile? Gentile's anybody who's not Jewish. So in other words, God wants to save all types of people. And it's God's plan to save people. And through Abraham... All the peoples of the earth will be blessed. You go to a place like Matthew chapter 1. It is Matthew and his gospel telling who connects the line and lineage of Jesus, the long awaited Messiah, to Father Abraham. And then when you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it is Matthew and only Matthew who tells us that Jesus stands on top of a mountain, he assembles his disciples, and there he gives them what you and I call the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me. Therefore, as you go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. For surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." We've examined that great commission before, and we know that it is one command with three participles. The one command is make disciples, and the participles tell us how we're going to make disciples. As we are going, we are baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and we are teaching them to obey everything Jesus has taught us in his word with the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us, for I'll be with you to the very end of the age. So Matthew understood that Jesus is the blessing from Abraham that God talked about all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, that through Abraham and his seed, through his offspring, through his lineage, he would save the world, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, after the resurrection, Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, I now empower you to go make disciples. This is something the Apostle Paul clearly understood. Paul knew that salvation in Jesus Christ was coming to Jew and Gentile. So in his treatise, we call it the book of Romans. When you get to Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul asks a series of questions that reveals... These questions reveal that he understood that Jesus is the Savior of Jew and Gentile, and if you are saved, you are commissioned to be sent. Here are the questions that he asks. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe upon the one they've never heard? And how can they hear? Unless someone preaches to them. And how can they preach unless they are sent? Did you hear the verbs in that succession of questions? Take it in reverse order. 
First one you come to in the opposite direction is you come to the word sent. That those that are sent, they go and preach. Now don't get hung up on that word preach. It simply means to tell the good news. That those who are sent go and preach or tell the good news. So that the nations, so they may hear. And if they hear, then some of them will believe. And if they believe, then they will call on the name of the Lord. And Paul had already said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right? So you've got this succession of being sent and preaching the gospel so that they can hear. And if they hear, then they'll believe. And if they believe, then they'll call on Christ. If they call on Christ, they will be saved. My question to you is this. At what point can the system falter? At what point does the plan fall apart? And the answer is, if the sent don't go and tell. That's the only place it might fall apart. That's the only place. Because if the sent go and tell the good news, then will lost people hear? Yes. And if they hear, will some of them believe? Absolutely. And if they believe, will they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You bet your bottom dollar. And if they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, will they be saved? Absolutely. The only place where the system might falter is if the sent don't go and tell. I know what some of you might be thinking this morning. You think to yourself, you know, I like Mission Sunday. Mission Sunday's good. It makes me feel good. Doesn't it make you feel good? I mean, to hear that we as a congregation over the next 12 months, we're going to go to 23 places in the year 2023. That over those 23 trips, we're, we're, we're going to invade seven states of the United States of America. And outside this country, we're going to invade with the gospel five countries. In this year, Lord willing, kind of makes us feel good. I know some of you may be sitting there and you think to yourself, you know, I, I like Mission Sunday. Makes me feel good. Makes me feel good to be part of a congregation that takes seriously the mandate of the Messiah. Makes me feel good to realize that uh, we really put our money where our mouth is and we really want to be on mission for him and we want to live sent lives in a lost world. And so uh, th this, this really makes me feel good. I mean, you kind of look around and you see people and you kind of nod at them and you smile at them and you think, you know, it's a good day. But preacher, I ain't going anywhere. I mean, this Mission Sunday is a good thing, but it's for somebody else. It's not for me. I ain't going anywhere. Why aren't you going anywhere? Well, I don't have the time to go anywhere. I don't have the money to go anywhere. I know it's a good thing, and I know that it's good for us to be a part of it and do it collectively, but pastor individually, I ain't going anywhere. And I think to myself, and I ask you the question, are you saved? If you are saved, you have been saved to be sent. And God sends you on a mission outside the church. Remember, God is making disciples of us. And a God-built disciple is one who has a mission outside the church. I don't think we can sit here and say, 
this is a good idea, but I ain't going anywhere. I don't have any plans of doing any of them trips that you have out there for 2023. They all sound good. I hope some people will go, but it's not going to be me. Friend, are you saved? If you're saved, you've been called to be sent. The only way the plan falters is if the sent don't go and tell. In other words, what I'm trying to ask is what's your what, where's your where, and who's your who? What's your what? Where's your where? Who's your who? Since a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ, what are you learning? Since a disciple is one who lives sent on the go with the gospel, where are you going? It matters little to me if you go across the street or across the globe, but where are you going with the gospel in 2023? And who are you trying to reach? Since a disciple is one who knows Jesus personally and makes him known passionately, who are you trying to reach? If a specific person doesn't come to mind in three seconds or less, then you're not being intentional enough. You can't just sit there and say, I'm going to win my school. I'm going to win my neighborhood. I'm going to win my family. I'm going to win uh, Pelham. I'm going to win uh, Helena. No, you've got to think specifically, who am I trying to reach for the gospel? And if a specific person, if an individual face doesn't come across the screen of your mind in three seconds or less, you're not being intentional enough. I realize that as a denomination, we say uh, that we are one of the world's greatest missionary, missionary organizations. We boast about that as Southern Baptist, but we're not doing it as well as we need to do. I, I came across what I think are the most current statistics. In the year 2021, the Southern Baptist Convention had more than 50,000 churches, boasting a membership of more than 14 million individuals. In 2021, we also reported a little bit less than 155,000 baptisms. If you do the math, that means it took 90 Southern Baptists to win one person to Christ. The ratio a few years ago was that it took 54 Southern Baptists to bring one person to Christ. And here we are just about four or five years later, and that ratio has skyrocketed to 90 to 1. It takes 90 Southern Baptists to reach one person for Christ. The average is that every church in the Southern Baptist Convention has three baptisms per year. Now, don't misunderstand me. I rejoice over the 155,000 individuals who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and follow through in believer's baptism. We praise the Lord for that. But 80% of Southern Baptists have never shared their faith with anyone. We call ourselves one of the most missional organizations on the planet for Jesus Christ, and yet eight out of ten of us have never shared the gospel with anyone. Let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Let me ask you specifically, when was the last time that you had a gospel conversation with anybody? 
where you share with them how you came to faith in Jesus and how much Jesus means to you. When was the last time that you shared your faith with someone? Was it last week? Was it last month? Was it last year? Was it last ever? When was the last time? I hear the statement that has been told to me for years, and maybe you've heard it along the way. Christianity, they say, is one generation removed from extinction. So we've got to go and tell. Now, I will tell you, I I appreciate that statement because of the urgency that's baked in it. There's a sense of urgency there, right? You stop and think to yourself, now, wait a minute. Is Christianity really one generation removed from extinction? That means I've got to tell my children and my grandchildren. I've got to tell people about Christ. And so I appreciate the urgency that's baked into the statement. What I don't appreciate is the fact that theologically it's incorrect. Because God will never be left without a witness. There will always be a remnant. Always. There will always be a group of people who believe in Jesus Christ. Christianity will never become extinct. It will never become extinct because God is never left without a witness, somebody to testify who he is and how he acts. He's never left without a witness. There is always a remnant. But I do appreciate the urgency of that statement because we need to act as if it all depends on us, knowing full well that it all depends on God. But yet still, the only way the system falters if the sent, don't go and tell. If you're saved, you've been saved to be sent. You've been saved to be sent to tell the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the pagan nations, those who do not know him as Savior and Lord. The saved, the, the, those who are sent are those who are saved by Jesus to speak of his salvation. Why? Because God is so crazy about people. God is passionate about people. He acts justly. He governs the affairs of the nations rightly. Then you come to the third stanza. And the third stanza is based on a promise. It gives us a promise in verses 6 and 7. The promise simply says, the land will yield its harvest God will bless us, and the ends of the earth will fear him. The word fear should better be translated worship him. That's the promise. That when stanza one and stanza two happen, stanza three is inevitable. That when God's people pray, and we understand the passion that God has for us, and we share that same passion for the nations, when we do stanza one and stanza two, stanza three inevitably happens where the promise is given. The land will yield its harvest. Wait a minute. Up until now, this psalmist has not said anything about the harvest. Why why does he talk about it now? He's not talked about cornfields. He hasn't talked about vineyards. He he hasn't talked about any kind of harvest. And before we want to spiritualize it and say, oh, but he's talking about the harvest of souls. 
No, he's not. He said the land will yield its harvest. If he was speaking spiritually, he would not have said the word land. But he says the land will yield its harvest. What does he mean? Is he trying to argue that if we go and tell, then God will bless us with big barns and big bank accounts? Is that what he's saying? Is that what he's saying? That if we go and tell, that if we, if we obey stanza one and stanza two, and if we go and tell the nations, then the promise that's given to us is that God will give us great wealth and great health. Is he saying that we'll have big barns and need bigger barns, and we'll have big bank accounts and need bigger bank accounts? And I don't think that's what he's saying, because I think you know that's not true, because you know some missionaries, and maybe you are that missionary, and you are faithful to the mission of God in your life, and yet you have meager means, limited resources, very limited resources. We've known missionaries that were so poor they had nothing, and yet they were so faithful to the mission. So what is the psalmist talking about? Well, you and I both know we are not prosperity theologians. We are not people who proclaim health and wealth. Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. We, we don't say that. We're, we're not people who believe that if we have faith, God will give us a bountiful harvest. God will give us a bountiful, healthy life. So what is he talking about? I think verse 6 of the promise is more about the reliability and the sustainability and the sufficiency of God. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He also owns the hills as well. The land belongs to him. This is a statement more about the reliability of God than your faithfulness. It's more about God is so reliable that he will not be left without a witness. And those who witness for him, he will provide for them. Is there anybody who could testify that God has provided for me? He's provided a roof over my head, shoes on my feet. He provided clothes on my back. He provided a car to drive or maybe a car to plug up as an electrical vehicle. But he's provided all that I need. Is there anybody who could testify that God God is a good God, and God is reliable, and God is sustainable, and God is trustworthy. That's what verse 6 is about. The promise is that the God that we talk about, he is reliable. And if we can rely on him, so can the nations. If we can rely on him, so can the pagan people as they accept his salvation in Jesus Christ. So that God will bless us and the ends of the earth will worship him. You get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and you see the fulfillment of verse 7. Because God's people, the saints, are gathered around God's throne. And we are told there's representatives from every nation, every kindred, every tribe, and every tongue. And what are those people from every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue doing? They are praising the Lord. And what are they saying? John tells us in Revelation, they are saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. 
Salvation, this salvation of Psalm 67, God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what the psalmist says will happen actually will happen because we've read the back of the book. Friends, I get to the end of Psalm 67 and I realize that the major point of the psalm is that the, those who are saved are to be sent and those who are sent ought to proclaim God's salvation. When that happens, people praise him. So if it's okay with you, before I take my seat, I, I just want us to praise him. Because he's worthy of our praise. I've read the back of the book, so we just need to praise him. I know who wins the war, so we just need to praise him. I, I realize that what the politi political pundits say and the talking heads proclaim is that the only news is bad news. But I've got some good news for you. That if you are dead in your sins, you can be made alive in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that causes me just to want to praise him. God is so gracious, I just got to praise him. God blesses me, so I've just got to praise him. God has his face to shine upon me, so I've just got to praise him. I've got to join the other peoples of the nation who know him personally, and I've just got to praise him. I've got to praise him because God justly. I've got to praise him because God is dependable. I've got to praise him because God guides the nations rightly. I've just got to praise him because God will yield the harvest of the land. I've just got to praise him because God has blessed me more than I deserve. I've just got to praise him because I love him so much. I've got to praise him because I need him so much. I've got to praise him because he is holy and I am not. I've got to praise him because he's majestic and I'm a mess. I've just got to praise him because he saved my sin-sick soul. I wish I had somebody else who could help me today. But I've got to praise him because my God is a good God. He got me out of some stuff, so I praise him. He got me out of a mess, so I praise him. He's made a way out of no way, so I praise him. He's given me an answer when there was no answer, so I praise him. I've just got to praise him because God is good. So the nations may see, I praise him. So my neighbors may see, I praise him. So so my family might know I praise him. So my co-workers can understand I praise him. So the lost people in Pelham know I praise him. Let people all around us understand that's the reason we praise him because God is good. <laughs> Psalm 67 causes us, calls for us just to praise him because he's worthy of it. If he has saved you, he has sent you. And if he sends you, he wants you to tell of his salvation so that the nations just might know how good your God is because they see it in your life. They see it in your actions. They see it in your decisions. And when they see how good your God is, they say, I want that God. It was James Montgomery Boyce who challenged his Presbyterian congregation 
He said, are there people who see you and they think God really has helped that Christian? Then he asked that age-old question. If Christianity became a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you are saved, you have been sent. And if you are sent, you proclaim his salvation across the street, around the globe. Because God is good and he's worthy of praise. This morning we're about to sing a song. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, today can be the day of your salvation. As soon as we sing that song, if you're here today and you think to yourself, listen, I, I need that Jesus that that guy's been talking about. I don't know what that fully means, but I just need to trust Jesus. Friend, I want you to come forward, take one of the ministers by the hand, and we'll talk to you a little bit more about this Jesus. If you are a Christian, then maybe today you need to come and pray and say, God, please send me, help me to go and to tell, tell me where you want me to go this year in 2023. Maybe you're praying for yourself, for your family, uh, for your prodigal son, your prodigal daughter, whatever it may be. You come, you pray. As the Spirit of God leads, you respond in obedience unto him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. Help us to praise you. Help us to glorify you. May your face shine upon us. Help us be obedient unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.